All right. Um, so if you've been with us for a year now, we have been kind of trekking our way through the book of Mark. And we have come to the last, what we have been, what we have, what has historically been called the Stations of the Cross, or the Way of the Cross. And what we're doing as we work our way to Resurrection Sunday, to Easter Sunday, is, is to kind of pause and look at these different places that Jesus found himself. To ask the question or to look into what was actually going on uh, with Jesus. And then what does that, what does that mean to us as we, as we leave this place? And so this week, we find Jesus uh, in a place we have not seen him in the whole book. He has dealt with Gentiles before. But this is the first time we see him in front of a Gentile authority. This is the first time we see him in um, a legitimate government scene. And Jesus, through all of this, takes on a posture that really um, is a little bit unexpected when it seems like one would have this sort of platform. that led to bringing Jesus before Pilate. 
In other words, something happened that said this situation is too big to handle on our own or too important to handle on our own. And so they convened early in the morning or late at night, however you you look at those hours, and they decided the best way to accomplish our agenda is to get Jesus before Pilate. And so what I want to do is instead of reading, let's just kind of, I want to talk through a little bit. We're going to go before this text, and I believe it starts in, um, in 14... 55 through 65, in which we find Jesus in another courtroom situation. But let's even go back a little further than that. We, uh, in, in chapter 11 of Mark, which, is, uh, which was probably a couple months ago, Jesus enters the temple, right? And we talked about the importance of the temple system, the law system, the sacrifice system. And Jesus is questioned a lot. He uses a lot of examples. But in other words, he begins to reimagine what these systems might look like if they no longer were confined to what they had been confined to. They were no longer confined to the rules of the law, the rules of the sacrifice system, or the physical building of the temple. And in chapter 13, Jesus is leaving the temple. And one more time, one of the disciples brags on how beautiful it is. And he basically says, God is going to tear this whole thing down. All of it. The law system, sacrifice system, and the temples you look at. And then for the next chapter, he monologues on what this is going to look like. Now, this is the part... Where the, where the Sanhedrin, the religious elite, become livid. Because here's the deal. The temple was the centrality of the Jews' life. And if the temple was the centrality of the Jews' life, then the law system and the sacrifice system was the ultimate authority in the Jews' life. And the Sanhedrin ruled that. It was their way of keeping the status quo. It was their way of controlling the people. It was their way of self-promotion hidden behind the guise of pure religion. And everything had been going well for them. And then Jesus shows up on the scene and says, I'm tearing it all down. So it's not just the systems, but it's the control that they had. It's the status quo as they had created it to be. And this causes them, this is the final blow that makes them decide we need to get rid of this man. And so for the last couple of weeks, we've looked at Peter's denial. We've looked at uh, Judas's betrayal. We've looked at the Last Supper. And so as Austin taught last week, uh, Peter's denial, while Peter is denying him, in 1455 through 65, at the same time we have Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin. And they begin to, it lets us know their motive. Their motive, they had no desire for truth and justice. They didn't care. It was not, we've heard these things about this man. Let's see if they are true. And if they are true, then we can do what we need to do. They had to do away with Jesus. 
so they bring him before the Sanhedrin. They start to throw all kinds of accusations against him, but nothing sticks. Because there, there's one rule, or there's plenty, there's many rules, but there's one specific rule in the Sanhedrin that, that made these accusations invalid. In the Sanhedrin, if you were going to accuse somebody of something and it was going to stick and you could take your, uh, your accused or your prisoner to a back alley and do a nice Jewish stoning to them, if you were going to do that, two or more witnesses had to completely agree. And Mark lets us know that nothing they said agreed with each other. Nothing. And so they have nothing to do with what they want to. So they, they, they figure, instead of throwing accusations, instead of throwing lies, let's take the direct approach. Let's just ask him if he's the Messiah, because everything he has done up until this point is in some way claiming that. So they ask him if he is the Messiah, and Jesus, unlike any other time in the book of Mark, if you think back through the book of Mark, what we've gone through, when Jesus has asked these sort of questions, he answers them not in a, very, in, a, in a very indirect way. It, to us, it might seem like he's skirting the issue, but usually what he's doing is turning it back on them and inviting them into a deeper story. But this time, Jesus does not do that. Jesus directly says, by invoking the name of God, I am. I am the Messiah. But now remember, the Jews did not think the Messiah was divine. Okay? And they thought he was a military leader political leader. One who would come trade oppression for oppression. Trade injustice for injustice. Justify holy violence due to pagan violence. This is who they thought the Messiah would be. So Jesus takes this opportunity and says, I am, but if you want to play this, let's go a little deeper. And not only am I the Messiah that you have been waiting for, that has been promised who has been in front of your face this whole time in the temple, which is where you're supposed to recognize God, but you couldn't recognize me. But he begins to push a little deeper. And he invokes Daniel 7 by calling himself the Son of Man. And he invokes Psalms 110 where this being, this man, this, this Messiah figure, this prince, this king is sitting at the right hand of God. And he says, so not only am I the Messiah, but I am the one. See, in Daniel 7 in Psalms 110, the Son of Man shows up on earth. And here's the irony. He shows up on earth from a cloud and he judges the entire world as his own. And he puts his thumb on oppression. The irony in that is Jesus not only claims to be the Messiah, but he claims to be the judge of the universe who is submitting himself to the judges of Israel. And what he says is he says, I'm sitting at the right hand. He doesn't say God. He uses the word power. Now with the Jews, they oftentimes, unless necessary, would not invoke the name of Yahweh because it was so sacred. So what they would do is they would often, if they were talking about God, is they would invoke a particular attribute of God, if that's the part of God they were talking about. And so when Jesus says, I am sitting at the right hand of power, what he is saying is, I am not just the Messiah you think I am, but I am the one sitting at the right hand of God, empowered with and reigning with the very power that makes up God himself. 
and I am coming back to judge the world and you. And the dudes lose their mind. They go, they forget their own humanity and go animalistic on him. They start spitting and slapping. They just go nuts. And and now, this is where we show up here. They reconvene. And they think, we've got to do this bigger than a nice little stoning in a back alley. We've got to do this so the whole world can see. We've got to get him in front of Pilate. And we've got to get him crucified. Because here's what happens with with the crucifixion. Not only is it public, not only does it do away with the person, but if you go back to Deuteronomy, what we find about crucifixion is the man who is hung on the tree is cursed by God. So they decided it's not enough just to do away with him. But if he is claiming to be this and he is getting all of these followers, the one way to not only kill the man but kill the legend is to prove that he is not on God's side but in fact cursed by God. And so we need to convince Pilate that he has committed treason against Rome. And this is the scene that we walk into today. Jesus, who has just claimed to be judge of the universe, one who will judge and defeat oppression and injustice, standing before the very arm of Rome. And while Pilate, and we, we, we see this, this figure, we see this figure Pilate, and the interesting thing about Pilate is history tells us, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself and we'll go back up, is Pilate hated the Jews. He hated them. He did some very, history tells us, he did some very vicious, vicious things to Jew. It was, it was like his delight to prove to the Jewish people that your God is not king, but Caesar is. That the kingdom of God is not advancing, but Rome is. And I will use every situation I can to rub it in that you are the pigs of this planet. And this is the man they bring Pilate to. And we know what happens. We, we, we read it. So Jesus stands there, seemingly very, very silent, which I think is Mark's way of drawing him to the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Jesus stands there, silent. Pilate, uh, I, th- I don't think he cares about justice. I don't think he really cares that the man's innocent. If we look at some of the other texts, I think he just doesn't want to do what the Jews want him to do. But Pilate cares more about career advancement. He cares more about uh, his political stature. And John, we, we, we're told that um, as he is not wanting to crucify Pilate, or crucify Jesus, Pilate's not wanting to crucify Jesus, the Jews make an act, they, they threaten him. They say, well, if you don't crucify him, then we will tell Caesar that you're no friend of Caesar's. And so this was a political move for Pilate. And though he was, he could not find Jesus guilty, gives into the mob mentality, turns him over instead of Barabbas and have him crucified. Or he turns Barabbas over and Jesus crucified. Right? This is how the story goes. But here's what I, what I want to dive into today. Is as we approach this scene, as we jump into this scene, we really see four types of characters, person, persons, groupings of people that are represented here. Okay? We have... We have the mob. 
right? The ones who are yelling, crucify them. Now, the mob is made up of, of a few different types of people. We have the Sanhedrin. We have the religious elite. But we, we have those who, the, the normal, the public, who are being influenced by the Sanhedrin, right? Who are being influenced. Now, these, these are very fickle people. Because just a few chapters ago, they're the very ones waving palm branches, saying, Hosanna, he's our king. And now they are the ones who are yelling, crucify him. The mob represents those who can't think for themselves. What the media says must be right. And they're not really in and of themselves actively unjust people. But they're just kind of indifferent. I mean, they'll stand for justice unless justice conflicts with their status quo life. Sure, they'll stand for right. They'll go with what's ever popular. Jesus was popular a couple chapters ago. That's cool. We want to be saved there. But it looks like he doesn't have much of a chance here, so we'll go with that. So the mob, they're this this fickle group who will go with whatever seems to be popular, whatever seems to be self-protective. Really, whatever seems to not ask a lot out of them. We have, uh, we have Jesus. Who I think on one, on one hand is, really he's the epitome of the poor and the powerless and the oppressed the voiceless. He stands as an innocent man condemned by other people's agenda. He has no voice for people to listen to. In fact, his innocence and the justice that it would take to free him is put on the back burner for status quo, personal agenda, self-promotion. After all, he's just a silent, poor, powerless, oppressed man. Nobody's really going to miss him. And I think he stands there as one who represents those who we do the same to. Maybe not like Pilate, but maybe in our indifference. But he also stands not as just a man, but as God himself. He stands as one in front of Pilate as God, as the Messiah who chooses not to defend himself according to the ways of this world but rather says in the place of the poor and the powerless and the weak and the oppressed I will absorb everything that the age of chaos has to throw at me and I will not let it defeat me but I will defeat it. And I will start in motion deaths, injustice, oppressions, final death. And he also stands as the one with the Barabbas wing who is the substitute for the guilty man. And we have, we have Barabbas. We have the mob, we have Jesus, and we have Barabbas. And Barabbas, he's the revolutionary. 
he actually, if you look at his character in history, he actually looks like the Messiah that people wanted. He, he, you know, Mark tells us that he was the one caught in the insurrection. He was a murderer, not of his own people, but he was the one who was going to use vengeance and violence against Rome. He was going to use Rome's tactics against Rome. He was bringing about, his mission was to bring about his version of God's kingdom on earth by justifying holy violence and holy oppression as a necessity to overcome pagan violence and pagan oppression. He's, he's the right-wing terrorist. Right? That's who he is. He's going to justify everything he is because of the evil he is. And he is the one who gets off, not because of anything he does, because Jesus silently and willingly stands in his place. And then we have we have Pilate. He's the one who stands really, if you, especially if we go to the John story, he's the one who's really intrigued by Jesus. He knows that these, this mob and this religious elite and the Sanhedrin who do have this, uh, this facade of power are envious of him, but they can't, they can't really tell why. He's, he's a poor, powerless man, homeless man is intrigued with him. It even tells us at one point as, as the mob is throwing accusations at him. Pilate asked him, aren't you going to conform to the way of the world and fight back the way they're fighting you? And Jesus doesn't even respond. And it says, Pilate stood there in awe. Because he didn't understand when given the moment how a person wouldn't capitalize on that for self-promotion and self-protection. How a man wouldn't submit to the way that was going on in order to free himself. Because Pilate was all about that. In fact, that's what directs Pilate to turn him back over to be crucified. Because Pilate doesn't want to do it. It doesn't look like he wants to do it. He thinks he's innocent. He sees no reason to do it. But as we stated earlier... More than that, Pilate has one thing in mind. His own life. Self-advancement. Political power. Career. And stepping on this poor, powerless nobody, at the end of the day, what does it matter? And this is the scene we have. We know how it's carried out. We know, just on the surface of things... It looks like the mob doesn't get their life messed with. The religious elite win. Pilate wins. Barabbas definitely wins. And this homeless, poor, powerless, oppressed man is silenced. Never to be heard from again. At least that's what it looks like. Right, we all know the end of the story, and I don't want to spoil it for you, you know. Um, but... But so, so as I'm looking at that, I'm looking at this scene and I see these four characters. I, I thought, what, how do you... And here's, here's the deal. Let me, I'll just be really honest with you. I read a lot of commentaries on this. And every single commentary had a different ending approach on how to apply this and how to look at it. So that was, that was no use, really. And so, because not any of them were wrong. And I think that's the, the weird thing about these kind of texts is that 
there are really a lot of right angles you can come at this with. And so as I kind of just dwelt on this and thought about it, I, there's this, I'm going to use a fancy word because it makes us sound smart, but it's really not that big of a deal. Um, there's this idea when you look at a text or this, this term called triperspectivalism, okay? Right, that's a fancy word for three perspectives, right? We just say it that way to make it sound smart. But the reason we use that word is because in our society today, when we think of different perspectives, we think of perspectives that uh, collide or do not agree with each other, right? Kind of the agree to disagree idea. If I have this perspective on this verse and you have this perspective, we usually talk about that as opposing perspectives. But triperspectivalism, the, way, the reason they use that is so, so right away our mind doesn't go there, but rather it's, it's more of the idea of layers, that there are three accurate or three or more accurate perspectives to this that actually weave themselves together. And I think that's what we see in the text. And we'll just kind of work our way through them quickly. And then we'll be done and you guys can engage in spring break. Okay? But the, the first one I think we see is, um, the first perspective we see, and I won't spend a lot of time on this one, is the perspective of the political. Okay? Um, and I don't mean just government. But I mean all the political aura or whatever that goes on in our lives, in our jobs, the way we posture ourselves, on all, all, all of that stuff. In this text, it's specifically political government. But Jesus does something really odd here. We, we, we kind of summarized uh, 1455 through 65 where Jesus is extremely direct question from uh, the Sanhedrin. But Pilate, when, he, when Jesus is brought before Pilate, Pilate knows which question to ask him because remember, the reason they're bringing Jesus to Pilate is they want, Jesus to, they want Pilate to find Jesus guilty of treason. So the first question they ask Jesus is, are you king of the Jews? Well, here's Jesus' chance. He can witness. He can evangelize. He's got the stage, man. He's got the opportunity to say, Yes, I am. And our translation even strengthens Jesus' answer a little too much. The equivalent of what Jesus says is, if you say so, or is, is that what you think? I don't know, you tell me. This is the way the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Judge of the world when he's given the opportunity to respond to Pilate positively, directly, take that stand, he goes, mm, what do you think? And here's why. And I, I think maybe, this is, here's a little lesson on the way we respond to things. Is one, Jesus refused to submit his thinking and his answer and his way to the ways the systems and the parties created by broken man. In other words, to answer that question directly would have compromised the real truth. See, Jesus was more interested in truth than he was in parties. He was interested in truth more than he was sides. And what Pilate was actually asking, in other words, Jesus was responding to the question behind Pilate's question. 
Because what Pilate was actually asking is, are you like me? Are you going to use violence to do this thing? You've got some army waiting up in the hills to terrorize us and to take us over? Is that what you're going to do? Because if it is, I'm going to put you to death. Because in Pilate's mind, that's what a king did. And so Jesus is in a weird place. He's like, well, no, that's not what I'm going to do. But yes, I am the king of the Jews. So yes and no. Yes, I'm going to take over this world, but not the way you think I am. So yes and no. I'm going to turn the hearts of the people to me with grace and love, not by force and violence. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to reign this thing. I'm going to reign over this thing. But, but not the way you do. I'm not going to take people over. They're going to run to me. Yeah, I've got my own nation. But it's not defined by geographic boundaries. In fact, it's really small right now, but it is going to spread like wildfire and it is going to see the fall of Rome. But again, not through violence, but through justice and love and service and mercy. So yes, Pilate, I I am the king of the Jews, but no, not according to your terms. And I think sometimes, what oftentimes seems to be the most elusive or evasive answer is when we really do stand for truth. Because truth, God's truth, refuses to submit to sides created by broken humanity. And Jesus will have none of it. In fact, what Jesus was doing was inviting Pilate into a deeper conversation. Pilate had no interest in that. He had interest in self-advancement. It's like the, so, uh, are you Republican? Well, yes and no. I mean, I agree. This is kingdom-minded, but, but this isn't. I don't know. You tell me. Okay, then you're Democrat. Wow. I mean, th- this is kingdom-minded. I, I don't know. You tell me. Because when we care more about truth, when we care more about kingdom, it is impossible to fit the parties of this world. And sometimes the best political answer we get or can give is to invite people into a deeper conversation about what the kingdom is. So there's the political part. There is the, uh, the Christological part. Okay? Mark, in this one section, especially if we go back to 14, 55 through 65, lays out who he believes the Christ to be. And it actually starts with the word that he uses. One of the accusations they throw at Jesus in 1455 through 65 is he claims that he personally will destroy the temple. He personally, the man Jesus, will physically destroy the temple. Except what's interesting there is Mark, for the first time, doesn't use the Greek word for temple as temple that encompasses it all. Rather, he uses the word holy of holies. That's the word he actually uses there. And so what they're really asking him, or what they're really saying, is Jesus say he's going to destroy the Holy of Holies. Right now, Holies of Holies was a place that the high priest went in once a year. They 
took the blood of the sacrificed animal. And back in the Old Testament, or, or actually back in uh, the early part of the Old Testament, they would, they would pour it on the Ark of the Covenant. When the Ark of the Covenant was, was taken or lost or whatever, they poured it on the foundation stone. The high priest would stand in the place of his people. He would confess the sins of the people because he was the only one who could go into the presence of God. And so right up from the bat, Mark is letting us know that this Messiah is now the new Holy of Holies. He is the place we go to to meet God. He is the final sacrifice whose blood is spilled. He is the one who intercedes for the people of God. He is the foundation stone of this new thing. He is, and then as we go on, he is the one who will judge the world. But at the same time, he is the one who will put an end to all oppression, injustice, hatred, loneliness, not because of violence, but he will absorb it in himself and put death to it. He is the one who stands in our place because we're all Barabbas. He's the one who willingly is condemned because we have no idea what we're doing. This is who our Messiah is. And Mark makes it very clear that he wants to drive this home to us. But then there, so we've got the, we've got the political, we've got the Christological, and then we've got the personal. Pilate stands before the crowd and he says, Jesus or Barabbas? You get to choose. We're the crowd. Jesus or Barabbas? Now here's what's interesting about the early Greek manuscripts. Do you know what Barabbas' first name was? Jesus. In fact, his name was Jesus Bar Abbas. In other words, Jesus son of Abbas. Okay? But that could be confusing. So, some of the early translators decide, let's take Jesus out of that, because then we got two Jesuses, that's weird, people would be confused. Um, and let's just, and so it just became Barabbas. But here's what Pilate is doing. He's standing over the mob, those who are influenced by status quo, those who are influenced by self-protection, those who like life the way it is, those who become so easily indifferent to the injustices around them. And he looks at them and he says, which Jesus do you want? want the one that you can control? Do you want the one that toes your party line? Do you want the one that you have made into your image? The one that if he gets out of hand you can kind of bring him back to look a lot like you? Do you want the Jesus that happens to, to define everything like love, mercy, and grace according to the way you do it? Or do you want the Jesus that will interrupt everything? That demands he is either Savior and Lord of your life or he is nothing. Do you want the Jesus who shines a light into the places you like to keep dark? you like the Jesus who messes up and interrupts your status quo? Who turns your value system on its head? Who says... The way to me is not promotion, but it is by taking up your cross. And Pilate stands before them and says, You tell me, which Jesus do 